Don't you just love those stories? So great. Um, and uh, I remember, I think it's actually been a year since Pat started coming, I think last Christmas, and I remember the Sunday that Karen raised her hand to recommit her life, and just amazing, amazing things that God is doing, and uh, love to get to hear those stories. Like I said earlier, my name is Jason, I'm the pastor here at the church, and we're really glad that you're here. It, even if you are not like into Christmas, like even if you're kind of a Scrooge, which I can be a little bit sometimes, I know that's hard to believe, but every now and then I could be that way. Like we're a week away. So it's officially Christmas time. You, I mean, no matter what, like it is Christmas time. We took the kids um, two nights ago, I guess, to, to Target to uh, buy Christmas presents for each other. And, um, and, and that was interesting because it's the season of giving unless your parents give you money and you're at Target and you just want to buy everything for you. Anybody relate to that? So you just kind of work through that. It reminds me of the, the joke I heard about the two kids who were, um, their mom made them pancakes and, like, and, and they were eating breakfast. And, and so she put the plate of pancakes down on the table and they both like started fighting for the pancake. And she said, boys, if Jesus were here, he would let you, he would give, he would let you have the first pancake. And the oldest boy looked at his brother and said, you be Jesus today. <laughs> that sums up the relationship of my oldest two right there. And, uh, but no, it's Christmas time, and we hope that the next week and, and uh, next weekend leading into our Christmas services, it's going to be a good time. I hope you're bringing some people with you, somebody you love and care about. Next week's going to be, uh, next week's going to be awesome. Saturday, 5 o'clock, and Sunday at 10 and 11.30. Uh, it's going to be a good time. So it's Christmas, and we're going to have a great time and be together, and I hope that you are a part of it, okay? Today is the last week of a Christmas series uh, that we have been in called Peace Has Come. Peace Has Come, and this series has been all about one line, one statement in the Christmas story. We get it from Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It's where the, the angel shows up to the shepherds and lets the shepherds know that Jesus is coming. Like Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha, Mary and Joseph are, are too many Bible stories right here. Mary and Joseph are headed to the hospital. It, it, it's happening and, uh, and wanted the, the shepherds to know. And then all these other angels showed up and started singing together. And they sang, glory to God, to, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. And this series has just been about that statement, peace and goodwill towards men. Because what the angels were not saying was, now that Jesus has come, there's going to be like world peace. Nobody's going to bomb anybody and everybody's going to be nice to everybody in the Facebook comment section. Okay, that's not what the angels were saying, because we know that's not true. What the angels were saying is that because Jesus has come, the whole reason we celebrate this and sing the songs we sing, like because Jesus has come, if we have relationship with him, that, that he has provided a way to know God and that we can have peace and experience God's goodwill, this, this attitude or feeling of cooperation, that we can experience God's peace and goodwill. And no one else before Jesus could experience peace and goodwill like we and those of us after Jesus can experience it. And so what we've done for the last three weeks is we've just talked about how to have that peace, how to experience that peace. I don't know about you, but I could use a little more peace in my life. I could sleep a little better at night, not worry as much, not be so 
afraid. I don't know why. I mean, some of you could help me with this, but I don't know why as you get older, you get more afraid. I guess maybe you have more to lose. It would be very easy at this point for me to sound like an old man about how my parents, you know, let me ride around without a seatbelt or ride my bike three neighborhoods over or, you know, be gone for like four days and nobody asks any questions or whatever, you know, and now like we, we're like, where'd you go? What, what, you know, I don't know why that's the case necessarily. Maybe too much law and order SVU. I'm not sure. But there is this feeling that we have so much to be afraid of, isn't there? Isn't this, there's just this feeling that, that we've never had more reasons to be afraid, but the words that the angels told the shepherds were true then and they're true now. Because Jesus has come, we can have peace and we can have goodwill. The first week we just talked about this idea that God is for us and that if God is for us, instead of having what if fears, we wanna have even if faith. That whatever God has in store, whatever happens, we know God's for us. Last week, we talked about how to fix our thoughts, how to be still and fix our thoughts like Philippians tells us to do. And what we're going to do this week is we are going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about trust. We'll get there in in just a moment. But we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 6. Back to Matthew chapter 6 and read through this chapter because it is the best... uh, passages or the the best opportunity that we have for Jesus to give us a sermon. Like if Jesus were here today, this would be Jesus's sermon on fear and worry. And he gives us a lot of content, not even really broken up, just just a lot of good Bible verses about fear and worry. And what I love about Matthew chapter 6 is that we've spent a lot of time talking about how not to fear and how not to worry and how not to be anxious. But Jesus is going to get a little more to the heart of the matter and a little more to why we're so afraid and why we worry so much. Now, one of the things that I love about Jesus so much, but one of the things that I love about Jesus is that when he has the opportunity to teach us, it would be so easy for him to use guilt to teach because he's Jesus, he's perfect, we are not. And so when it comes to Matthew chapter 6 and a chapter of the Bible about fear and worry, it would be so easy for him to make us feel bad because we all worry too much. We all, we all fear too much. And so Jesus could just start talking in Matthew 6 and just go on this rant about how terrible we are and what bums we are. And if we really loved God, we wouldn't be afraid. And if we really trusted God, we wouldn't worry. Maybe somebody's told you that before. What I love about Jesus is he's the good teacher. So he doesn't use guilt to try and motivate us. One of the things you need to know about me is I am not motivated by guilt at all. Now, some of you guys are. I think a lot of people are. You're motivated by guilt. I don't know how God or why God made me how he made me, but I've never been motivated by guilt. So if you try to make me feel bad to get me to do something, you're gonna be really disappointed because it's not gonna motivate me. Even as a kid, I, I would... I would grow up playing sports and coaches would, you know, be yelling and like, get with it, Isaacs, why are you such a bum, you know? And I'm like, why are you yelling at me? I don't understand. Why do we have to yell? Can we not talk about this, like, level-headed? And I don't know, I just it's always been the case. But what's interesting is that, that for pastors and preachers, it's so easy to just go the guilt route really fast. Maybe you've met a Christian like that. Maybe we are that Christian sometimes. Just so easy to, to, to like put a Jesus juke on somebody, you know? 
And, 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 I, and I experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that. I've probably been guilty of it before. But like, so I remember growing up, I would hear, you know, pastors say things like, or preachers say things like, you know, you'll go, to the, you'll go to the sporting event and you'll cheer real loud and have a lot of passion, but you come into church and you don't get excited about Jesus. And everybody's like, ooh, got me. You know, like, we don't say that, but it's like, oh, got me. I saw a meme the other day that said, um, you'll stand in line for four hours on Black Friday for a $20 crock pot, but you won't come to church. And everybody's like, oh, snap, got him, Jesus juke, right there, right? And every time I see that or I hear that, like, it makes me cringe because guilt does not motivate you to lasting change. It doesn't. There's no change in your life that has happened that you have kept or that has been extended over a period of time that, it, that has ever come about because of guilt. It doesn't work. Jesus knew that. So Jesus' motivation is never, his intent is never to guilt you into loving him or following him or doing what the Bible says. So his thing is he wants you to fall in love with him and as you fall in love with him, it begins to change your life, but it's never out of guilt. And so it doesn't work. But if somehow it did work, like if somehow you felt terrible about standing in line for a $20 crock pot, but missing church, if somehow that did motivate you to love Jesus more, to have a relationship with Jesus, all that would eventually do is make you, um, you know, uh, make you regret or make you bitter that you can't have what you want, that you have to follow Jesus. Really what you want in life is season tickets and a $20 crock pot. But you have to follow Jesus because you don't want him to be mad at you. And so we try to use this guilt, but Jesus doesn't do that. And he has every opportunity today in Matthew chapter six as he walks us through this, he has every opportunity to say, you're a bum if you loved me more, if you trusted me more. He has every opportunity to do that, but he doesn't. Here's what Jesus is gonna say. We're gonna read it together in just a second. Here's what Jesus is gonna say. Like a great teacher that he is, he's going to say, the things that you're worried about and you're afraid of are a big deal. He's not saying it's not a big deal. Isn't that frustrating when you're afraid or you worry and somebody's like, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus is not saying today the things that you're worried or afraid about are not a big deal. What Jesus is going to say is, what you're afraid of and worried about is a big deal, but I'm a big deal. That's what Jesus is going to say. So it's a big deal, but I'm a big deal. I'm a bigger deal. That's what he's going to say. And he's going to do it like this beautiful, he's going to lay out this case like a, like a great lawyer. Like he, he's going to just build on one statement after another to get us to the end to where you're going to have to have some hard conversations with yourself He's not gonna say it for you. He's not gonna push you over the edge. He's gonna walk you to the edge and he's gonna ask you and kind of force you to, to be honest with yourself and to ask yourself, do you truly trust him? And is he the most important thing in your life? Not because basketball's bad or crockpots are bad, but because he is good. Do you trust him? And, and, do you, and, and is he the most important thing in your life? Okay, so let's work through this. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And we're going to read, uh, read through this and a little bit and stop along the way. I would love for you to follow along because we're going to read a good bit of Scripture today. So I'd love for you to follow along with me. If not, it'll be up on the screen for you. Okay? 
Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19. Here's what it says. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth. This is Jesus talking. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. If you've ever been robbed, you're like, yeah, yeah, got that. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And then 21, here's one of the famous Bible verses. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now don't get nervous because this is not a message about money. But Jesus is going to start because he's going to lay out this beautiful kind of argument or philosophy, if you will. He starts at the very beginning by saying, by making this general true statement. Wherever you are financially invested, that's where you will be emotionally invested. That's just that, that is, that's not because you're a bad person, it's because you're a human being. And it's the way life is set up. That wherever you are financially invested, that's where you're going to be emotionally invested. Okay? So we could, we could go down the path today to talk about money, talk about how you spend your money, talk about what you enjoy with your money. We could do that. That's not the point of the message today. But this principle is true, and it's where Jesus wants to start the conversation. I think all of us could agree. No, no arguments. I think all of us could agree that wherever you are financially invested, it's where you're emotionally invested. And I, I had a guy ask me a question the other day that I'd never been asked before that's totally kind of haunting me a little bit. And he said, what would your life look like if the biggest check you wrote every month was to God? He's like, I know you faithfully give and tithe, like, but what would your life look like if you are emotionally invested, if you're most emotionally invested where you're most financially invested, what would your life look like if the biggest check you wrote every month was to God? Haunting question that will be another sermon for another time. The point Jesus is trying to make here is not about money. It is financial investment, emotional investment. Let's keep going. Skip down to verse um, 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Stop. Second statement Jesus is making. He's building, he's building a case. He's working us down. The first thing was, or I'm financially invested, I'm emotionally invested. The second thing Jesus wants us to know, because he's taking us somewhere, is that two things cannot be most important in your life. Okay. Two things cannot be most important. That when it comes to things that you deem important in life, two things cannot be most important. Ultimately, in your life, something is most important. And for those of us who have been around church long at all and know how sermons tend to go, a little bit of foreshadowing of where Jesus is about to take us, okay? Let's keep reading, 25. That is why I tell you what? That, that, you, that, that where you're financially invested is where you're emotionally invested and that two things can't be most important. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds, 26. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns and your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? 27, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? So let's stop because we've got a third, third thing that Jesus is setting us up because he's taking us somewhere. Where I'm financially invested, I'm emotionally invested. Two things cannot be most important. And now the third thing Jesus wants us to know is that whatever I value in life is what I worry about. That's what he just said, right? 
Look at it. He said, that's why I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, enough drink, or enough clothes. Now, some of you are like, I'm good because I don't care what I wear or what I eat. Like you eat ramen noodles, you wear sweatpants all the time out of the house, okay? And you're like, I'm good. I don't care. It's like, you don't have to tell us. We know you don't care about how you look. We get it, okay? Got it. But he's not just ending the argument. He's not just ending the statement at food and clothes. He's just using those as examples. And we could list, we could list tons of examples. The point he's making is, if you care about it, you worry about it. And some of you are like, well, I don't know if that's true about me. It is true about you. It's true about all of us. Let me give you a couple examples. When you were driving that 1997 Honda with 347,000 miles on it, right? Like, you would eat spaghetti with meat sauce in the drive-thru. You didn't even care, right? I mean, like, you would let me borrow it, and I'd be like, man, I'm sorry, dude. I hit a, I hit a stop sign. Like, it's cool. It just gives us some character. No problems, okay? You're not worried about it. I mean, it's making a sound, I don't care, no big deal. Then you save up some money and you go down and you buy you a brand new car. Not driving 97 Honda anymore, okay? You're driving a new car. What's the first rule you establish? We will not eat in the car. No more lasagna in the drive-thru at Fazoli's, okay? No more eating in the car, right? I marvel at some of you, you're able to keep that rule for like a year. Lasts a week for me, okay? And, and so you, you marvel that. Then I say, hey, could I borrow that car? You're like, bro, I don't know. I just got this. I don't know if I'm not, I'm not I don't know if I can, what's happening? You're worrying about it. Why? Because it has value to you. 97 Honda, no value. Do whatever you want. I don't care. Leave the windows down with the keys in the ignition <laughs> with a sign that says, steal me. I mean, like, just take it, Okay. I don't even care. Now, I care. Some of you, you put great value in your yard and your landscaping. So my kids come over and, you know, start using the restroom in the bushes and, you know, start digging stuff up in the yard and, you know, whatever. You're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Why? Because you value it. And so we could keep giving examples of, you know, cars or TVs or money in your bank account or anything in your life that you value You attach what comes with the value is fear and worry. So if you value your appearance, you worry about your appearance. Is everybody following what I'm saying? This is just, I mean, this is like basic philosophy, life stuff that Jesus is just beautifully laying out for us. If you you value how you look, you worry about how you look. If you value what people say about you, you worry about what people think about you. With value comes worry. And so all of us are like, oh yeah, I got it. That's cute. Money, stuff, car, landscaping. Awesome. It's not all cute. We could go down another level and talk about things that we value and it starts getting incredibly personal to us. Can I give you an example? Our children. Our children. I value my children. Children are a gift from God. I value them. But the point that Jesus is making here is if I place too much value on something, then I'm going to have too much worry and fear attached to that thing that I value. So what happens? We have children. They are amazing. They are a gift from God. And we are charged in the Bible to raise them well. 
But if I put too much value in them, if I, if I, you know, uh, what's, I was about to say disappropriately, that's not a word. If I, if I don't, if, if I put the wrong amount of value, too much value in my children, then I become one of those parents who lives in constant fear about my children because I have placed more value on them than I was supposed to. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, what I'm not saying is send them out in the street during rush hour. What I'm not saying is not know where they're spending the night. I'm not saying like what, you know, just, hey, here's the keys to the car. You're 12. Just go do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying. Obviously, there's a level of responsibility that comes because we need to be good stewards. But if I view my children as my everything, because remember what Jesus said in the second statement, that two, two things can't be most important. Remember what he said? So if what is most important to me, I'm a parent, four of them, if what is most important to me is my children, they're number one on the list, then I will live dominated by fear and worry, and I will be one of those parents who's like, where are they at? Where they don't, don't, don't leave the driveway. What, 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 what'd the teacher say? Uh, how, how, do you get everything? What'd that person say? Is that guy driving? Like, what? I live in fear and worry. Don't, don't, leave, don't leave my sight, right? Some of you, you're experiencing that, and this is not a guilt. Jesus is not applying any guilt. He's laying out the case for you that where you are dominated by fear, you have placed too much value in something, more value than you should be. Obviously, our families have to be somewhere near the top, right? But they can't be at the top because if they're at the top, with more value comes more fear and more worry. What what if I don't have a family, Jason? What if my biggest fear in life is that I'm always going to be alone? That's a valid fear. Like, that's a legitimate fear, something that we worry about. But Jesus said two things can't be most important, didn't he? So if the most important thing in your life is that you are not alone, then you will be dominated by fear and worry that you'll never have companionship, right? It will dominate your thoughts because it's most important. And the more we value something, the more we worry about it. Am I making sense to everybody? We could keep going on this point over and over again because it's the basis for what Jesus is going to get to at the end. But he tells us when we're financially invested, we will be emotionally invested. He tells us that two things can't be the most important thing in our life. And he tells us that what we value, we worry about. And we keep going. In verse 28, and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. So if you take those last three or four verses, you put them together, he says, look at the birds, look at the flowers. God's saying, I provide for you. He's just kind of challenging us. Like, do we believe that we are our providers or that God is our provider? And in case you're like a huge animal lover, just the answer to that question, are, are you not much more valuable? The answer is yes. You, as a human being, are more valuable. We love our animals, but we are more valuable. God cares about us. And then he asked this question, and he, he's getting to his closing argument. He asked this question. He says, we'll certainly care for you. End of verse 30. Why? Everybody say why. 
Why do you have so little faith? What a question. Because I gotta be honest with you, last week when I was preaching, we, we preached last week out of, uh, out of Mark chapter four. I wanna read it to you real quick. But we were preaching out of Mark chapter four and it was the story, it is the story of, um, of where Jesus calmed the storm. And he said, peace be still, and, and he calmed the storm. We preached that. I've read the story a hundred times. I've preached it before. I've heard sermons preached on it before. And as I was reading the story to you last week, I saw something in the story I'd never seen before. I had studied, I'd prepared, like, and I'm reading through it out loud. And because the, the Bible is this living, breathing book, like, I saw something I never saw before. And, and I, I, it was the question that Jesus asked the disciples after he calmed the storm, and I'd never, I knew he asked a question, but I never really paid attention to it. I just want to read it to you real quick. Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 39. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. We know that. Verse 40, then he asked them, here's the question he asked them, why are you so afraid? Here's why that's such an amazing question. And he asks us again, why do you have so little faith? Here's why that's such an amazing question, and it's haunted me all week, just so you know. Here's why it's such an amazing question. Because if I was to stand up here today and I was to say to you, what are you afraid of? You could tell me. Like, pretty quickly, you'd tell me. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid my kids will not serve the Lord. I'm afraid that uh, I'm going to get cancer. I'm afraid. Like, you, you could tell me what you're afraid of really quickly, like all of us could just take turns and we wouldn't even have to think that long about it. We know what we're afraid of. But if I was to ask you, why are you afraid? You've probably never thought about it. You've spent hours and hours and hours and hours of your life thinking about what you're afraid of, but I, ne I bet you've never spent much time at all thinking about why you're afraid of what you're afraid of. So if you and I were talking, if we were having coffee, and I would say, man, like, why are you afraid? You'd say, well, I'm afraid because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job and I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my house. And I'd say, no, that's what you're afraid of. Why are you afraid of losing your job and losing your house? You say, well, I, I'm afraid that my kids are going to get in trouble. I'd say, no, that's not why you're afraid. That's what you're afraid of. Why are you afraid that your kids are going to get in trouble? It's a completely different question. Completely, and you're, some of you are like, oh, Jason, you're just switching words. No, no, no. It's a completely different question. It gets to the motive of our fears. So a few years ago, I was just going through a, a rough personal time, and, and my wife, who loves me, who was sick of me, said, you need to go see a counselor. I, I grew up in a house where, like, you know, you'd take two aspirin. Like, that's what you did if you had a problem, you know, like, you'll be fine. And so I was like, I don't, you know, I don't go to a counselor. And so I went, and, and we talked through some things, and I had a, another friend who was kind of helping me, and they walked me through this exercise, and I've talked a little bit about it before, but they walked me through this exercise called the five whys. Maybe you've heard of this, but the idea is that whenever you're upset about something, if you ask yourself why five times, you'll get to what you're really upset about. So, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm mad that I lost my job. Okay, why are you mad you lost your job? Because I feel like I worked hard for the company. Okay, why does it upset you that you worked hard for the company and they let you go? Because other people deserve, you know, you could keep working because I, I deserve to keep my job over other people. Okay, why do you believe that you, and if you keep going, you're going to get to the reason that you're upset. I'd never done this exercise and, 
And, and, and so we started working through these things about why I was really upset. And I walked in thinking that I was upset because of A. And after we processed this information, I realized that that wasn't really why I was upset at all. The real reason was much deeper in my heart. And that's the power of a why question. So Jesus is not asking you, what are you afraid of? You know what you're afraid of. He's asking you, why are you so afraid? And I honestly would be willing to bet you've never answered that question before. And I don't want to spoil it for you because I would encourage you to do the exercise. But as you work through the exercise, at some point, answer three, four, five, six, somewhere in there, you're going to get to an answer that has something to do with trusting God. And the answer is going to be something along the lines of, because I don't trust that God knows what he's doing, or I don't trust that God loves me, or I don't trust that God is good, or I don't trust that he knows where I'm at or what I'm feeling or what I need. At some level, you keep digging, that's where you're going to get to. That was the answer for the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Because we were drowning and you were sleeping, which is really about do you care for me, which is really where all of us get to anyway. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And that's the question that Jesus wants to ask us today. Not what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid? And it goes to trust. So he started by talking about, you know, investment. Then he started talking about importance. Then he started talking about value. Now he's talking about trust. And like this incredible lawyer who has laid out this case, he gets to his closing argument in verse 31, and here's what he says. So don't worry about these things. What things? Everything from 19 to 30 that we just talked about. Don't worry about these things, where your kids are going to go to school, if you're going to have a job, if you'll have enough money, if you're going to get cancer, if something terrible is going to happen, if your car is going to break down, if you're ever going to have a child, if you're ever going to get married. These things, those things. He says, don't worry about these things. And we're like, you're like, how could I not worry about those things? What we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear. These things, 32, dominate the thoughts of unbelievers which makes sense because if you don't have Jesus, you have a million things to be afraid of. And so unbelievers, what he means is those of us who haven't had a relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't genuinely, truly believe that Jesus left heaven to come to earth to die when he didn't have to so that we could know God. But if you believe that, then you you do believe that God is for you because he would send his son to die for you. That's Christmas. But, he says, your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. I just want to stop for a second. We got one more verse we're going to read, but I I just want to ask if you really believe that that is true. Do you truly believe? This goes back to the why. Do you truly believe that your heavenly Father knows what you need better than you know what you need? Because, see, you think you know what you need, but you don't know what you need. If I was to take my kids to the grocery store today, and I would say, okay, guys, what do you need? They'd say waffles, you know, gogurt, uh, you know, sun chips, fruity pebbles, 
I mean, they would just, they would start telling me, and here's the deal. They honestly believe they need it. They're not being silly. They genuinely believe that they need it. They don't know what they need. Let's go get some bananas. Let's go get, you know, like we're going we're gonna to stay on the outside here. Like, because I know what you need. I'm your father. And we'll get some Fruity Pebbles. But other than that, like we're going to get what we need. It's the same thing is true with us. It's not that they're making up something. Like they genuinely believe that they need the waffles. And so when we go to God and we're like, God, I need a wife. God, I need a job. You don't know if you need a wife or need a job. You think you need a wife or you need a job or a kid or a, or a cure or an answer. You think you need that. But do you really honestly believe that your heavenly father knows what you need better than you know what you need? Because I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. But I've spent so much time in my relationship with Jesus acting like my six-year-old when I tell her we cannot get any Lunchables. (laughs) But why can't we get it? You ever acted like that with God? If you make a scene again, I'm going to take you to, like, why can't we? I'm just looking at all the parents like, I'm so, I'm a terrible parent. I'm so sorry. Forget, you ever, you ever acted like that with God? Because you think you know what you need. And God's like, you don't know what you need. You think you need Fruity Pebbles. And so he's laid all this out and he's making you answer some hard questions And then he says in verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Goes back to priority, value, investment. Live righteously. And he will give you everything that you need. Do you believe that he knows? And second question, do you believe that he will give you everything that you need? Now listen, we've run out of time, but let me just say this. I grew up in church. I'm churched as church could be. I've heard all the sermons. I've read all the books. I've heard all the songs. And this verse, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It was like, a, it's a famous one, right? You've probably been familiar with that one too. Hey, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And we just kind of throw it out there like, seek first the kingdom. Like, but if you don't read 19 all the way down to 33, like you're, I'm, just, I'm just supposed to just seek God First, seek the kingdom of God first. How do I do that when this is happening? This may happen. What may happen here? And he doesn't just expect you to just blindly seek. He says, no. If you ultimately believe that where you are financially invested is where you're emotionally invested, and you ultimately truly believe that you cannot have two things be most important in your life, and you ultimately truly believe that the things that you value are the things that you will worry about, and you honestly believe that I'm your provider and you're not your provider, and you honestly believe that I know what you need and I will provide what you need. Like if you really believe those things, if you don't believe those things, you gotta psych yourself out. But if you genuinely believe those things, then you get to verse 33 and you're like, oh, well then I'm just gonna seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. He'll take care of me. He'll take care of me. Now, here's where I've been all week is, is this thought that if 
God is good, and he is. And if God is for me, and he is. And if God knows everything that I need, and he does, then what do I have to be afraid of? And that's what he said in Romans when he said, if God is for you, then what could stand against you? This was not some rhetorical, like, you know, great, like, black gospel choir song. This was a statement of, like, disbelief. Like, wait a second, don't rush past. If God is for you, what could possibly stand against you? And so... If I believe that God is good and God is for me and God knows everything that I need, then then all of the fears that I have in my life, specifically all of the worst case scenarios in my life, if I believe that God is good and God loves me and God knows what I need, then what I think is worst case is actually best case. What I think is worst case is actually best case. And you're like, Jason, how could you say that? I'm not saying that the absolute worst things that could ever happen to us, that at some point on this side of eternity, we'll be like, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. But some of you could say that. Some of you could say that time that I got arrested and went to jail and thought my life was over. I didn't know what I needed, but God knew what I needed. Best case. Some of you would say, when I found out that I got cancer and I was sure I was going to die, it was the worst day of my life. But now, looking back, best thing that ever happened to my family. When I found out that my spouse had cheated on me and everything that I like believed about life was crumbling and crashing around me and I thought, this is as bad as it can get, God redeemed it. He worked it together for good. And as crazy as it sounds, Jason, that's the best thing that ever happened to our family. You know why we can say that? Because what we think is worst case is really best case. Because God knows what we need. And he sent Jesus to make a way for us to know God. So what do we have to be afraid of? What is there to really be worried about? Because if I will seek first the kingdom of God 10,000 years from now, which we'll hopefully be together, serving Jesus together 10,000 years from now, every fear that I have will seem ridiculous. 10,000 years from now. So I'm gonna seek first the kingdom of God. Be financially invested. Put my value, make him my priority and trust him that he knows what I need and he will provide what I need even when I don't know what I need. And I will not be afraid. Let's pray.